Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Trust for God's blessing upon you and upon the time that we have here together. I'd like to share the opportunity we have to study in the book of Acts with you today and look forward to our time. Oh, I thank the Lord for the studies that we've had on Zoom and the ministry, particularly the recent ministry by both Jack and Chris, just how blessed I've been, how insightful they've been in the presentation of the word, and I trust that today's will be as well. We're going to be studying Acts uh, chapters 18, verses 24 through chapter 19, verse 41. That is all of chapter 19. So <clears throat> hold on to your hats. We'll be moving pretty quickly, but I trust it'll be a blessing to you as we do so. Let me look at, or let us look together at some items in connection with this. First of all, the outline that we'll be following. There's the enrichment that takes place there in Ephesus. That is the enrichment of the gospel. And that starts in chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. Then the expansion of the work that was done there in Ephesus, chapters 19, verses 1 through 20. And then the eruption that takes place in Ephesus, that's chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Let me share with you just some introductory thoughts of things that God is doing that stood out to me, things that God is doing uh, that stood out to me in this portion of scripture. First of all, there is God providing a strategic stronghold, and that place is Ephesus. Now, Paul has been on two prior missionary journeys, and he's had a stop in his second trip at Ephesus for a short while, but Paul has in mind this place, Ephesus, as being an important spot for there being a church to be established, a witness and a testimony for the sake of the Lord. So God providing a strategic stronghold. The second thing that impressed me is God using people. God uses singles and a married couple, particularly in this portion of scripture. God uses all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. And so we thank the Lord for his willingness to use people in the advancement of the gospel and the establishment of his church. And then the third thing is God looking for humility in his workers, God desiring us to be humble and to have humility before him. Just taking these first three, and let's make a quick application of this to ourselves. God providing a strategic stronghold. I pray that for each of us, God will provide a strategic stronghold, either a location or a situation or a ministry where we can be used by him for his glory and for his praise. May we be looking for that strategic stronghold <clears throat> that God would provide for us. The second thing is God using people. God uses singles here. He uses Paul, he uses Apollos, he uses Timothy, he uses many single people in his ministry. God also uses a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, this marvelous couple that we'll touch on during the study. God uses people that are widowed. God uses people that are in a variety of circumstances and situations. And God desires to use me and you. So may we be aware of God's desire to do that in our lives. And then that third point, God's looking for humility. In this situation, we have this intellectual Apollos who's going to be instructed by a tent-making couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Apollos could easily have asserted himself as far as his intelligence and his eloquence would be concerned, but rather he humbled himself and took the instruction from this couple. It makes me realize just how little I know, how much I need to be humble, how I need to have humility in the presence of God and to learn from others. May God instill that thought in all of us. <clears throat> God resists the proud, but gives grace to those that are humble. 
The last two points, revival through the gospel, the city of Ephesus, and in fact, all of Western was changed as a result of the gospel having its work in people's lives there. And we'll see that, that it had a social impact on what took place there, an economic impact on what took place. And when we have that, there's opposition to the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed and people receive the Lord and there are changed lives, we shouldn't be surprised that there is opposition that takes place in connection with this. In the context of our own time here in the United States, we certainly would desire for God to, in his grace, grant revival to come to our nation and for that revival to have its influence uh, socially, culturally, politically, and uh, economically. So as we think about these things and get ready to go into this portion of scripture, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you for the book of Acts, for the grand and glorious story it is of the spread of the gospel, of the establishment of churches, of the willingness of God's workers to lay their lives in the line for his glory and for his namesake. We pray now for your blessing on this study today. Thank you for the means that has made it possible for us to continue to have this study in Acts by using the uh, technological means that we have to put it on our web pages and for people to be able to look it up and to go through it. So dear God, we just thank you for that. Thank you for those that are working hard to do that. We pray for the reopening of the assembly that uh, this past Wednesday we had folks there for prayer meeting and some on Zoom and that'll take place this coming Wednesday. And then on the 14th of June, there'll be a hybrid meeting for the Lord's Supper, our first one. And we just pray your blessing upon that. Father, we would be reluctant or unwilling to pray for our nation at this time. Uh, tragic and unjust actions that have taken place that have caused hundreds of thousands of people to demonstrate. And so, dear Lord, we pray for our nation. As we have studied here in the book of Acts, we see that God is not a respecter of persons, that in your church you have included Jew and Samaritan and Gentile, that in your evangelistic ministry, we have seen that there is Jew and Samaritan, there is Asian, African, European, all brought into your church by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that all are acceptable to you because of their acceptance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So dear Lord, we know and know that you value you don't just value us as believers, but it says God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for sinful individuals and in that you love them so very much that you sent your son to die for them. So dear Lord, we pray for you giving us our perspective, your perspective on the lives of individuals and that we would deal uh, justly and walk humbly before our God. We pray about the COVID virus as well, Lord, in the missionary letters that we had this past Wednesday, it seemed that almost every missionary was commenting on the extent of the COVID virus and how it affected uh, the lives of the people there and the ministries that they had. We think of the letter from Bolivia, Lord, uh, the city of Trinidad, Bolivia, where 40% of the people there are infected with COVID virus. Dear Lord, help us, we pray. Humble us, we pray. This tiny little virus requiring electronic microscopes to truly study it. And yet here, this tiny little thing has brought the world to its knees. Crippled economies, disturbed schedules. And so, Lord, you are in control. We are not. We humble ourselves before you this day. Ask your blessing upon this study in this portion of scripture and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's go on with our study now. And we're first of all going to read from 
Acts 18, verses 22 and 23. Now, what's happened is Paul has come back from his second missionary journey. He has gone to visit the Jerusalem church, and now he's gone to Antioch, and within two verses, Paul turns and starts his third missionary journey. There's just so little detail given here by Luke about what happened. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 18. When Paul had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, that's the church in Jerusalem, and then went down to Antioch. Now that up and down, he went up, that's up in elevation to Jerusalem, and then he went down, down in elevation to Antioch in Syria. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, Luke uses this curious term, and that is of Paul spending some time there. <laughs> I don't know how much time. It sure seems like it's very short. <clears throat> and the reason for it is Paul has his eye on Ephesus. Ephesus is this large city, and it's in an important location, and it has great opportunities for not only new ground to be developed, but also for there to be ministry to the churches that have already been established in the western part of uh, the western part of Turkey and the area that we would call Macedonia and Greece. So it seems that Paul is just raring to go after it seems like a short visit to Antioch. So he now is going to go on and we have the part that's the enrichment in Ephesus. So let's read verses 24 through 28 here in Acts 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when Apollos wished to cross to Acacia, that is, to Greece, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So we have the enrichment in Ephesus that takes place here, and that is by the point of teaching by Apollos. Completely unknown to Paul, while Paul is returning back to uh, Jerusalem and to Antioch, God is using things to direct the ministry by having another person come into the scene, and that is Apollos. He is intelligent, he's well-spoken, he's fervent, he's competent in his knowledge of the scriptures, and he spoke about the Lord Jesus being the Messiah. One would think that he went to passages like Isaiah 53, Psalms 22, 69, 16, Deuteronomy 18, Zechariah 9, Malachi 4, that being a disciple of John's baptism that he would have used all of the images of the Lamb for John the Baptist spoke of looking at the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he would have spoken of Abel's Lamb and of the Passover lamb, and of all of the lambs that were sacrificed in the temple, and of course of Abraham's ram, the substitute for Isaac there in Genesis 22. So you have Apollos being very powerful in his teaching and apparently very eloquent, but he only knows about the baptism of repentance, that is of preparing ourselves for the Lord Jesus Christ to be the one that would bring in his kingdom. And Priscilla and Aquila, they hear Apollos' teaching. And so they then take 
Apollos, this eloquent, intelligent, educated man, and draw him aside. And they speak to him privately, and they give to him the way of the Lord more accurately. Aquila and Priscilla have been under Paul's teaching in Corinth for a year and a half. They have worked with him together in the tent-making work that they had to do, and so they've learned a great deal about all of the mysteries that have been given to Paul and entrusted to him, the complete gospel of the gospel of faith, that is, faith by the grace of God is given to us. We're saved by faith and faith alone, that there's faith plus nothing uh, that brings us to salvation. And so that's been taught to them. And there are the other doctrines that Paul is aware of and has taught, and that is the doctrine of the church, the Holy Spirit now dwelling in each one of us, the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church being the one that will be in this world for a period of time, but then taken out by the rapture of the saints. All of these would be truths that they would want to make sure that would be given to Apollos. And so they privately and quietly take him aside. Let's just think about Aquila and Priscilla for a moment. This couple deserves a sermon all on their own. They're mentioned six times in the New Testament, in four different books, in three different locations. And they've established two house churches, according to the scripture. And it says in the book of Romans that they laid their life down for the sake of Paul. Tent makers, tent makers drawing an intellectual aside in order to instruct him. This is where the humility of Apollos comes in. How we thank God for Apollos' willingness to listen to and be instructed by two individuals that he could easily have scorned. And he could have said, I have my degrees, where are yours? I have my ability to sway crowds. All the two of you can do is make a dwelling place for people and a temporary one at that. He could easily have despised these people for their lack of education, uh, their lack of sophistication, but he doesn't. Instead, he allows Priscilla and Aquila to instruct him. May we have that same kind of spirit that's in us. I think of years ago, there was a truck driver in our fellowship. His name was Jim Hardesty. There was also a doctor of chemistry, a world-known doctor of chemistry named Hugh Smith. Jim Hardesty had the ability to memorize scripture in an extraordinary fashion. And Jim and Hugh Smith had a relationship. And Jim was willing to be instructed by Jim Hardesty as far as Bible memory was concerned. It was a wonderful example of someone being fully willing to humble himself. Hugh told another story. He was raised in Scotland. There was a Lord there in Scotland that was a believer, and he and his wife would be driven Sunday by Sunday to the uh, local assembly. Their chauffeur, of course, was the one that was driving them. They got to the assembly. The Lord and his wife, who were extremely rich and well-to-do and well-known, in royal circles, sat down in the congregation. And then their chauffeur stood up and taught the scripture from the pulpit. He was deep in the word, a willingness to be humble, to humble ourselves. May each of us be willing to do this humbling and be humble. Now we have then, not just Priscilla and Aquila featured here, but we have the powerful reputation in public by Apollos. There are believers there, and perhaps a church has already been established in Priscilla and Aquila's home, and Apollos is sent over to Corinth, and there he refutes the Jews powerfully <clears throat> that the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the Christ. And it says, uh, regarding Apollos' ministry, this is Paul's testimony. Paul says there in Corinth, I planted, 
That is, for a year and a half, I planted the word of God. Then Apollos came along and Apollos watered. He encouraged that group of Christians to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God gives the increase that both Paul and Apollos had their places. So how we thank God for this man, Apollos. We then have, we then have the expansion of the ministry in Ephesus. And that's in Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. I'd like to read this in a little bit different fashion. If you'd follow along with me, I'm going to read verses 1a, then 8 through 10, and then 18 through 20 to get the flow of the story. There are some other details that come in, but let's see what the general picture is of the work there in Ephesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now down to verse 8. He entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when Son became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way or of the gospel before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And now to verses 18 through 20. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, over a million dollars in today's money. And then this summary statement here in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the general picture we have here in Ephesus is of Paul arriving, of him going to the synagogue, and of him proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, being there for three months, the opposition to the gospel by the Jews in the synagogue being intense. There are some believers there. Paul uh, takes them with him, and they go to the hall of Tyrannus. And there for two years, Paul preaches the gospel so that it reaches all of Western Asia, all of what we would call Western Turkey, and that it has a tremendous effect upon people. There is a church that's established there in Ephesus, and these people reject all of their old evil satanic ways. They burn their magic books, and the word of God prevails mightily during this two to three year period that takes place. So that's the general picture that is going on. But let's look at uh, something else that goes with this, and that is the prior work that was done. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were all in Ephesus for a short while, uh, perhaps as much as a month, it seems a short while. But Paul brought with him these two veteran individuals, Aquila and Priscilla, that were with him in Corinth for a year and a half. And they stay there in Ephesus. And their job is to prepare the soil for the gospel that's going to be coming. And then unknown, Paul is, uh, Paul has Apollos working there with Aquila and Priscilla so that more work is done. And he is very eloquent in his ability to explain that the Lord Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Messiah. And then Paul also was invited back. And so, we have this prior pre-evangelism work that's going on. And I just want to encourage us here today. <clears throat> I know before I became a believer, when I was close to eight years old, I had heard the gospel dozens, perhaps hundreds of times. It had been lived before me in my home. I had seen other believers in the church that we were in. And so, there's a lot of prior work that goes into 
someone doing the actual planting of the gospel seed on someone's heart. The gospel has to be repeated and repeated. So I just encourage all of us in prior work, uh, whether it's passing out gospel tracts or it's speaking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, living a testimony for his sake, whatever it is that God have us to, has us to do in the lives of other people, may God encourage us in this pre-evangelism work. <clears throat> Paul say, said that some watered, or that some planted, that he had planted there in Corinth. Well, I would want to submit to you that before you can plant, there has to be digging, there has to be pulling out of weeds, there has to be a preparation of the soil. And that's what Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos did. May I be willing to look at the work that takes place down in the Clifton area, where there are believers that go down there, they present the gospel, <clears throat> they share tracts. And for some people, it's perhaps the first time they've ever heard the gospel. Perhaps for others, uh, they've heard it before, but now they're hearing it again. That kind of work has to take place again and again and again in people's lives for there to be the gospel work to go forward. So encouraging all of us in this prior work that's done as far as the gospel is concerned. Then we have some particular groups that are pointed out by Luke. And these particular works, these particular incidents, they're extremely minor minor in nature, and they take place in comparison with the two and a half to three years that Paul spent there. They take place in perhaps an afternoon <laughs> or a shorter time than that. So let's read about these two groups. First of all, in chapter two, uh, chapter 19, verses two through seven. Paul came and found some disciples. And Paul said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is a small group. They're followers of the baptism of John the Baptist. They haven't heard about the believer's baptism that took place <clears throat> after the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven in the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost. And so now Paul gives them this instruction and he places his hands on them. And as a result of his placing his hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit and it's evidenced by them speaking in tongues. Now let's keep this little story in mind. Again, this might have taken place in an afternoon, uh, an evening, uh, just one day where this experience takes place. And then let's look at another one. And this is an interesting one. It's uh, verses 11 through 17. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons he had touched, that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered them all and overpowered them so that the seven sons of Sceva fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. We have a couple of things taking place here. First of all, it's 
pieces of cloth that Paul has touched and those being sent, and as a result of that, people being healed. Now keep, again, that in mind. Uh, the first incident was Paul laying his hands on people, on believers, and them receiving the Holy Spirit. The second one is Paul touching these handkerchiefs, aprons, cloths, and those being used to heal people and to drive out evil spirits. Then we have this situation where we have these individuals, <laughs> the seven sons of Sceva, Jewish individuals who are trying to exercise evil spirits, and they're using the Lord Jesus' name whom Paul proclaimed, and they speak to a man who is possessed of an evil spirit, and the evil spirit replies, Jesus, I know. He'd have known the Lord Jesus from the time that he was an angel in heaven and then fallen with Satan. And so he knows Jesus. Uh, Paul, I recognize, I recognize the authority that Paul has, but you, you people, <clears throat> who are you? Who are you to use these names, particularly the name of the Lord Jesus in this way? You may not do that. And so he leaps upon them. And so uh, this beating of these seven sons of Sceva who were supposedly exercising evil spirits and the uh, raising of the name of the Lord Jesus and the authority of Paul as an apostle. It's known. It's known there in Ephesus by both Jews and Greeks. But Luke uses these three incidents and the particular groups of people for his own purposes. Now again, uh, this, these two incidents... Uh, the one with the seven sons of Sceva, that might have taken place in an afternoon, uh, just a very short time, perhaps uh, an hour or so. And so you have the uh, groups that are uh, touched by Paul and receiving the Holy Spirit. Here you have the seven sons of Sceva. You have the aprons that are passed out. Now Luke uses these situations to make sure that he has a comparison between Peter and Paul all the way through Paul's time as an apostle, he's had to defend his authority as an apostle. And Luke wants to be sure that Paul is given full credit for his apostolic authority. The time that the book of Acts is written is later on. It's when Paul is in prison in Rome, or perhaps a little bit after that, his first imprisonment in Rome. And you have Luke wanting to make sure that his man, Paul, the one that he's accompanied, the one that he's taken care of, the one that he's ministered to all of these years, he wants to be sure that his apostolic authority is absolutely established. And the way he does this throughout the book of Acts is he takes everything that Peter does, and he balances it with uh, something that's almost exactly like it that Paul does. Peter was a recognized apostle, and Luke wants to make sure that Paul is recognized as an apostle. So let's take some examples that we have here in the book of Acts for Peter and for Paul. Peter's first sermon is recorded for us in Acts 2. Paul's first sermon is recorded for us in Acts 13. Peter is used to bring the gospel to Cornelius and to his household, and he becomes a believer. Paul is used in Acts 13 to bring the gospel to Sergius Paulus, and as a result of that, he becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both Gentiles, both rehearing the gospel, both receiving Christ as Savior. There's a healing of a lame man by Peter in both Acts 3 and Acts 9. There's the healing of a lame man by Paul in Acts 14. Peter was imprisoned and released in Acts 12. Paul was imprisoned and released in Acts 16, both miraculously released and uh, released from prison. There's an angelic visit that Peter has in association with his being released from prison. And so Peter is visited by an angel. Paul's visited by an angel when he's on board ship in Acts 27, and they're in the midst of a storm. So they both have had angelic visits. Peter raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9, and in Acts 20, 
Eutychus is raised from the dead by Paul. It is Luke's way of showing that Paul has full apostolic authority, just like Peter did. Now let's take the incidents that we have here in chapter 19 of Acts. Peter laid his hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 8. That's the Samaritans. After Philip's ministry, Peter went up there and he ministered to the people. And as a result of his laying hands on people, people received the Holy Spirit. Here we've just read about Paul laying hands on people that followed the baptism of John and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this is not the standard, regular, ordinary way that we receive the Holy Spirit. Once we have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, the Spirit of God comes into us. But these two incidents are taken and used by Luke to show the apostolic authority of both Peter and Paul, laying on of hands and receiving the Holy Spirit. We have Peter's shadow healing people in Acts 5, people bringing folks out into the street so that just Peter's shadow could pass over them and they were healed. Here we have in Acts 19, Paul's handkerchiefs healing people. And again, these are extraordinary, uh, unusual, powerful examples of apostolic authority. And so Luke lists these for us so we can see that both Peter and Paul have the same apostolic authority. And I'd like to point out as well that Luke says here in this passage about the seven sons of Sceva that the evil spirit that was in the man, <clears throat> he says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Again, Luke puts that in there to make sure that the authority that Paul has, that that's recognized, and that the people there in Ephesus recognize it as well. It says, fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was extolled. Just as Peter uh, was so powerful in the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. And it says, fear fell upon the church and all those that heard it. The same things, the same type of words are used here. Fear fell upon all of those there hearing about the uh, attack by the evil spirit in the man on these uh, individuals that were trying to remove that, that uh, evil spirit. And then uh, him saying, Paul, I recognize, I recognize that authority. So we have here in this chapter these uh, very short-term incidents, uh, each one at lasting perhaps a few hours, and yet Luke using them for the purpose of showing that Paul has full apostolic authority. Let's go on here and look at the public uh, proclamation that took place in uh, verses 8 through 10 and then 18 through 20. We've read 8 through 10 already. Paul entered the synagogue for three months, spoken boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that is the gospel, the church before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then uh, verse 20 says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. How we thank God for the opportunity that was given to Paul here to preach the gospel, <clears throat> Paul would refer to this period of time as a, a three-year period of time when he speaks to the Ephesian elders. He spent 18 months in the area of Corinth, and now here he's given the privilege of spending three years in Ephesus, and a great church is established there, a strong church and a powerful church that has influence there there are other churches that are birthed, apparently, from the activity of the Ephesian believers and those that go around in that area. Praise God for such a public proclamation of the gospel and that the word of God increased mightily. May God allow such a thing to occur uh, 
through our witness and testimony and through the work of other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have uh, the last half of the chapter. And again, this is just uh, an afternoon's activity, really, <laughs> that takes place, but it's used by Luke to point out both the revival, the effect of the gospel, and then the opposition that takes place, and then God graciously uh, helping in that time of opposition. Let me read verses 21 through 41 to you in Acts 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Greece and go to Jerusalem and then go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent two into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed himself in Asia for a while. That's in the area of Ephesus. Now at about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, concerning the gospel, concerning the church. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, that is the craftsmen, with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but that also the temple of the great goddess of Artemis may, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and all the world worship. When the workmen heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. But when Paul wished to go into the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the... Asiarchs, who were his friends, sent to him word and urging him not to come into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some cried out another, but the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, but Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But they, when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who neither sacri have been neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges one against another. If you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. We are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that can justly give to this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. We want to first of all think about Paul's plans. Paul has great plans for not just this area, but for other ministry. And he wants younger men, and so he sends... Erastus and Timothy on to probably Philippi and gives them instructions about the ministry that they're to have. We'll find that this is a pattern that Paul starts to adopt frequently in his later letters particularly, and that is of sending younger men off to do work for him. Timothy has two letters in connection with this, and in those letters, particularly 2 Timothy, you'll find an awful lot of instructions uh, the book of Romans has a great deal of instruction as far as people's ministry. Titus, the entire book, is devoted to instructions. 
as far as Titus and how he's to conduct himself, establishing elders in order there in the island of Crete. The book of Philemon, it's Paul sending back to Philemon's master, <clears throat> this runaway slave, and he says to Onesimus, uh, that is, uh, he says to Philemon, the owner, this runaway slave, Onesimus, is now being sent back to you. And so we have Paul directing these younger people, and he has plans, and then plans beyond, just not the trip back to Jerusalem. He wants to see Rome. My goodness, how those plans will be fulfilled. May God give us plans. <laughs> May God give us visions for what it is that he would like us to do as far as our Christian life and Christian ministries are concerned. Then we have uh, people being pers uh, persuaded, causing a problem. Demetrius, the silversmith, <laughs> his business is being cut into because there are people who have just thrown away all of their magic books. They're no longer following satanic rites. <clears throat> Perhaps they've even thrown away some of the things that he's created, these silver shrines to Artemis. And so his business and business of other silversmiths and other craftsmen being cut into, it's because the gospel has come into the lives of people and there are changes in how they have acted and how their attitudes are. And it has an economic impact as well. Now, for Demetrius, that was the problem then. We have a problem uh, in our own country at this time. May God cause the gospel to bring about changes in our own attitudes, our own actions, the economic impact of what we do so that it's felt by a godless society that is unjust in how it acts toward other individuals. Let's continue with this particular story though. <clears throat> we have Demetrius getting others to hear about this and he speaks to them and he says, uh, why, not only will our trades be held in disrepute, but they're even going to have this seventh wonder of the world, the Temple of Diana, be rejected and she'll be taken from her place of magnificence. We've got to do something about this. So they all run into this large, massive uh, amphitheater that's there, and other people join them not knowing exactly what the problem is. And they're yelling and they're yelling, and Paul wants to go in. <clears throat> Here's the point. When people are changed by the gospel, when people have been affected by the truth of the gospel, there's changes in their lives. It was obvious to Demetrius, obvious in his pocketbook, that there were changes in people's lives. May the changes that we have from knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ and his complete and full acceptance of all mankind everywhere have its effects upon us and what we do. We then have no problem whatsoever in Paul using the, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ using the agents of government to bring about order and control. And we have the town clerk, probably a Roman appointed authority coming in and speaking to these people and says, <clears throat> These people, these Christians, you brought them here, they have said nothing, absolutely nothing that's sacrilegious against uh, Diana. All they're doing is proclaiming the truth that they have done. If you've got a problem with this, you can bring them into court and you can try them there. Otherwise, <clears throat> you have no reason to be here and you all could be arrested and put in jail for rioting. How we thank God for governmental authority and for the proper use of that authority. Paul's already used it there in uh, Philippi. He was beaten unjustly and uh, privately the authorities wanted to take him out of jail and kind of usher him out of town. And Paul said, now just a moment, you beat us publicly and now you want to dismiss us privately. Is this how you treat a Roman citizen? Paul using the authority of his citizenship as a Roman. And then he'll use it again. Uh, when he goes back to Jerusalem, this issue of him being a Roman citizen will come up. And then Paul appeals to Caesar in his trials that take place. 
there's no reluctance at all in using the proper governmental channels for the preservation of the right of us to proclaim the gospel and to uh, have that authority used for the purpose of bringing order into situations. May God help us to be in prayer for those that are in authority. I think of those that are in police departments and of the challenge that they have and of such difficult uh, situations that they're in. May God give grace and help to them as they thoughtfully and judiciously use the power that they have. We think of legislators. May God give them the willingness to protect the opportunities that we have to share the gospel. And may we Christians also be alert to the fact that these provisions are there for us to use. And we're just a very small slice of what's going on as far as the world is concerned. We think of the situation that's there in Burma. And may God help those Christians to be uh, just as gracious as they can be and submit themselves to the authority that's there. May God help those that are in authority to be as merciful as possible and as gracious as possible to those that are involved with authorities there. We just come to God and ask for him to help us to be praying for those that are in governmental authority. Now that's uh, in some ways kind of an odd spot to end this <clears throat> passage from chapters 18 and 19 of Acts, but we pray that the thoughts that have been shared have been a blessing to you. They've certainly been a blessing to me as I've studied it. Let's have just a final word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you for this time and study of the Word of God. Thank you for the spread of the gospel. Thank you for the influence of the gospel in that society, in that economy at that time. You're still the same God, and the gospel is still the same. The Lord Jesus Christ is the same. The power of the gospel is still there, Lord. May it be used for your glory and your namesake here in our own nation and in the nations around the world. Bless and watch over the missionaries, we pray as they proclaim the gospel this day. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.